0: Now it's time for Rod and Reel Radio with your hosts, hop along John Cassidy, fresh and saltwater expert angler Stan Vanderberg, and all around outdoors fishing and hunting enthusiast Wendy Toshihara. If you love the outdoors, enjoy salt or freshwater fishing, yearn to wade in a high Sierra or Alaska stream, or just look forward to taking the kids out to one of our local lakes, chase trout, crappie, or bass, this is the show for you. We'll cover most all of the fishing tournaments and events with special reports, while providing you with the information you need as to how and where to experience the best fishing opportunities in Southern California, Baja, Alaska, or just about anywhere the fish are biting. Rod and Real Radio, brought to you by El Cajon Ford at Broadway in Maine or online at ElCajonFord.com. Whether it's time for a new or used car or truck, or you need to take advantage of San Diego's best quick lane for service with genuine Ford parts, brand-name tires at competitive prices, remember, nobody beats El Cajon Ford. We have some fantastic guests and reports lined up for you this evening, so sit back, relax, and get ready for the fastest two hours in radio. It's all right here, right now, on Rod and Real Radio, the best stop on your radio. Dial for all the information you need for fishing opportunities all over the United States. Now, here's your host,
1: hop along, John Cassidy. Hey, thank you, Mark Larson, in Southern California, welcome to another Sunday edition of Rod Real Radio. Hey, we're happy to have you aboard. We think we've got a great show lined up for you tonight with a lot of fun, a lot of information, and uh, just to let you know what's happening. First out of the slot, we're going to have the fishing weatherman, Chris Dunn, chief certified meteorologist uh, for now WPMI in Mobile, Alabama. But Chris had done a lot of work when he was out here at uh, W—I'm sorry, KPHO in Phoenix. He's a fisherman that if came out here to the West Coast a lot. Done a lot of work on the El Nino, and we're going to talk to him about just what the El Nino is. Is it here? Uh, what we can expect? In the later months. So, Chris Dunn's going to be with us. And then at the six o'clock hour, we're going to have lure manufacturer and consultant Mike Cordell with us. We are marking the first year anniversary of the passing of Cotton Cordell, Mike's dad. And we're going to go over Cotton's life, and you're going to be surprised at some of the lures and projects that Cotton was involved with in the many years as a lure manufacturer. So we're going to have Mike on at 6 o'clock, and I think you're going to find that to be a very interesting segment. Hey, but before we get on with Chris Dunn, let me introduce to you the co-host of Rod Real Radio. First of all, he is the voice of one eight hundred bass boat and a pretty darn good fisherman in his own right. Mr Stan Vandenberg. Stan, how you doing tonight, sir?
2: Well so far so good, you know, dry. That's a good start. Although we we've needed the rain and I checked the rainfall up at Casitas cause you know the the last tournament they had up there the launch ramp didn't work right and guys were having a tough time getting out, but they did and it's been closed ever since. And you know with all that rain they got absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We're seeing that pretty much in our lakes here, too, in uh, uh, San Diego. Uh, uh, I think San Diego currently has gotten about two and a half inches of rain for January, where normally they've got one and a half. And that's the reason why we're going to bring Chris on here in a little bit. We're going to talk about the El Nino with Chris. But, hey, stand before we do that, let me introduce our audience to the other co-host of Ron Real Radio, she is a national sales manager for Iserline and represents many other fine products in the fishing industry. Miss Wendy Toshahara, Wendy, howdy.
3: Howdy. I'm nice and warm and toasty in my house today, but uh, Friday night and Saturday, I was out in the cold looking for ducks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, was the uh, getting ducks you. as good as the looking for ducks?
3: Yes, um, well, actually, we went to one refuge and we didn't get on, so we had to uh, go to another refuge that was about an hour and a half uh, further north. So we didn't get on until, like, the afternoon. So it was a little slow, but I I still got a teal, green wing teal, so I was happy. uh, No, no, no. No, we didn't go to Worcester. We we went uh, north um, towards Sacramento.
1: Ah. Oh, right. Hey, guys, let's get on to our first guest. He was known for many years to us out here on the West Coast as the fishing weatherman. He worked for KPHO TV in Phoenix and earlier at KDVR TV in, in Denver. Unfortunately, time was that he had to leave, but he got a new position with WPMI in Mobile, Alabama, an NBC affiliate there. But while he was out here in the Southwest, he did a lot of work on El Nino. He was always telling us about fishing and weather Related fishing conditions. So I decided, hey, let's bring them on back for another visit to the West Coast. It's really our pleasure to introduce our, all of you to Chief Meteorologist Chris Dunn. Chris, welcome to Rod Real Radio, sir.
4: Hi there, John. Uh, you left a couple of gaps, though, in my resume, I have to point out. <laughs> you didn't mention the fact that I worked for Lee Palms Long Range Sport Fishers on the Red Rooster 3 and worked for Mike Keating on the Spirit of Adventure for a couple of years.
2: Wow, that's good. Those are good references, too. <laughs> you
3: better
4: believe it. Well, uh, yeah, and uh, and I, I also am friends with Wendy Trojohara. So, hi, Wendy. How are you doing? Good to see you again <laughs> on the radio. I'm doing
1: great. Hello, Chris. <laughs> uh, hey, Chris, well, you know, you had this fishing background. Uh, just tell us briefly before we go into the nuts and bolts of what we're talking about, a little bit how it progressed into being a certified meteorologist.
4: You know, uh, well, my, my career kind of took some weird twists and turns. I was uh, all set to to follow the sport fishing path and to, to get a boat and get my captain's license and all of that. And then uh, college kind of got in the way, and, and the light bulb went off of, you need to be in broadcasting. You need to uh, go into radio, and then that kind of turned into television. And I'd always had a, a lifelong interest in weather, and I was able to combine that interest in weather with an interest in broadcasting and television. And I don't know, they, they tell me that I have a pretty good voice and I should be a broadcaster. So uh, over the last 25 years, it's uh, served me pretty well. Uh, unfortunately, when circumstances changed for me in Phoenix last summer, uh, I was not able to, you can't just pick and choose where you want to be, and uh, I wasn't able to pick and choose to come back to Southern California. So I did the next best thing, and I ended up here on the Gulf Coast. I'm not here in Mobile, Alabama. I've been here for about four or five months, and uh, so far, so good. Uh, You know, the bad part is I've been working so much, I have not had a chance to wet a line here in the Gulf of Mexico. And they tell me that there's some fantastic fishing down here. They catch uh, blue marlin and dorado and wahoo within 30 miles of the beach on a regular basis. Uh, They get yellowfin tuna and blackfin tuna and and, uh, redfish and and speckled trout and all these uh, different fish that... uh, Didn't really have too much of an exposure to, but I'm anxious to get on the water and start fishing for some of those.
3: How far are you away from the ocean?
4: I am about a 40-minute drive. So if you uh, lived in um, uh, Placentia in Orange County and you were driving to Newport Harbor, that's about how far away from the Gulf I am.
3: Wow. Oh, that's close.
4: You know, Yeah. Now they tell me I have to get a boat, so that's my... That's my next mission. I have to get
2: a boat. Go out with a guide a couple of times and learn a little bit and then buy the boat. That's the best way to do that.
4: Right, right.
2: Okay.
1: Well, Chris, you know, uh, being from Phoenix uh, in a dry, arid climate, uh, a lot of times not a lot of dynamic weather to talk about as opposed to what you've seen in just the past few months since you've been in the Mobile, Alabama area. Uh, Tell us about some of the differences.
4: Uh, Well, first of all, uh, Mobile is considered the rainiest city in America. Really? We average about 66 inches of rain a year. In comparison, Los Angeles gets, uh, I think, about 13 or 14 inches.
3: Right.
4: Wow. Uh, So a lot more rain. And we had uh, the second wettest December on record. We had just over 12 inches of rain just in the month of December.
5: Uh,
4: Already a number of tornado warnings and tornado watches and severe thunderstorm this and that and, and lots of foggy days and yeah it's quite, quite different from being in the desert to say the least
1: well before we get on to the specific questions because uh, i know uh stan Wendy, myself we've got a ton of them as it relates to the the storms and whether they're el nino generated storms that we're seeing here uh, uh tell us just in a nutshell what el nino is and how it affects the weather
4: Okay, first of all, uh, the biggest misconception that a lot of Southern California anglers have is that anytime there's warm water off the coast, that's El Nino, and that's not correct. Most of the time, that's not correct. Uh, I use the analogy of yellowtail. You know, for those who are are not uh, anglers, they'll say, "Oh, that's a yellowtail tuna, right?" And I know everybody in the studio right now is <laughs> shaking their heads back and forth. No, it's
5: not a tuna.
4: Uh, to, to paraphrase an Arnold Schwarzenegger line in the movie, it's not a tuna. That's uh, right.
6: <laughs> but,
4: but everybody thinks, well, okay, well, it's a tuna. So everybody looking at the weather, they think, oh, warm water? Oh, that's El Nino, right? Well, not exactly. And uh, I've written a few articles about it on my website and uh, just uh, contributed to an article in uh, Saltwater Sports Magazine about this, too, where we've had this blob of warm water sitting off the West Coast for the last couple of seasons. And it's kind of a self-reinforcing type of deal where, for whatever reason, uh, we had this warm water there. We didn't have a big Pacific storm season last year or the year before that. So there wasn't really anything coming through to disrupt the water structure and to change any currents or anything that would bring in some cold water and resulting in some upwelling that would really cool off the water. So that, that warm water... We started out at a baseline uh, a lot higher in the season, and then when it warmed up during the summertime, uh, and last year, we're talking about 2014, was the first year that anybody can ever remember Oahu being caught off of Orange County. And then fast forward to this year, well, we didn't have a big storm season last winter, so that warm blob stayed in place, and it got even warmer this year, so Then you had cases of guys going out, oh, I'm going to go out and fish for Blue Marlin on the 14-mile bank today, or I'm going to go troll for Wahoo off the Dana Point. And they were serious, and they were successful. Uh, What we really need to kind of knock this system back uh, to where it needs to be is a really big storm system and uh, a storm season, and typically we will see that with a strong El Nino. And this being the strongest recorded El Nino on record, it would be highly surprising if we didn't get another series of storms like we had roll through here last week, where, you know, we have them all lined up one after another after another, and you know, people are saying, wow, where did this come from? Oh, this is El Nino. Well, it's kind of a, a byproduct of El Nino, but El Nino is defined as the warming of the Pacific waters along the equator, which is far removed from Southern California, but we do think that there are some side effects. And... And many times when there is a strong El Nino, there are impacts in Southern California. So, like, 57 to 59, 82, 83, 97, 98, and also this year. We've seen it here, Uh, obviously. We've seen the impacts. So, uh, there is a correlation, but it's not uh, a direct result of El Nino.
1: Now, Chris, uh, uh, you know, we had been suffering from drought here in the Southwest, but also so had... uh, texas and the areas of there and it seemed like uh, in past years as it was in this year that the texas area seemed to uh, experience the first effects of el nino with torrential rains that went through that area were those uh what you would call el nino generated storms that went through there or was that just uh, uh something at a natural cycle
4: well i i like to think of el nino as um How can I put this? Okay, I'll just go ahead and say it. It's like uh, Viagra for storms. It enhances and energizes storms. So normally we have regular old Pacific storms and we have our normal storm season and we get, you know, our 13, 15, 16 inches of rain. But when El Nino is present, more often than not, I don't know what the statistics are, but 75, 80% of the time when we have a strong El Nino in place, we get a much higher rainfall total, and it, it enhances the storms and it energizes the storms. So last spring's um, really significant rainfall that we had in, in Texas and Oklahoma that helped to fill up their reservoirs in short order, that could have been a side result of a developing El Nino in the Pacific. Um, certainly the flooding, the the unusual wintertime flooding we've seen in the Midwest, Arkansas, uh, Missouri, along the Mississippi River this winter, um, that is... A typical byproduct of El Nino, uh, the the southern branch of the jet stream gets energized and infused with a lot of subtropical moisture, and and so it it enhances the rainfall, and it and it goes way above and beyond what is normally expected, and that also goes for us here along the Gulf Coast too. Mobile, Alabama, typically sees a, a wetter and a cooler winter when El Nino is in place in the Pacific.
1: Well, then you know Texas just seemed to get hammered, and. And the weather there, unfortunately, for a lot of areas, was extremely violent. You know, you were looking at tornadoes in late December, and uh, which is very unusual weather. It seemed like all that weather was coming up, you know, from the uh, uh, the, the southeastern Pacific, and then crossing over to Mexico and going right in there. And then it it, it just seems like it naturally progressed that that plume of moisture started, uh, or that, whatever it was, uh, that warmer influence is now being felt out here on the coast. But, you know, when we were in a drought condition, it seems like we constantly had a dome of high pressure that was over our Great Basin area, and any of the storms that would come down from the north would deflect and go around us and and hit the Midwest and then go slaughter the east. It seems like, though, that's not the case. In fact, with this last set of storms, you could see three or four of them in a line. And is is El Nino a combination of the storm pattern and the warm water um, uh, encouraging these storms to come our way?
4: Well, you almost sound like a meteorologist, John. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Uh, You know, yes and yes. Uh, well, during our Pacific storm season, we typically see storms coming in from, from the Pacific Ocean, and, and normally the jet stream or the storm track lies a little bit farther to the south and then brings those storms into Southern California, uh, December, January, February, March. But when we do have El Nino, that strengthens the southern stream of the storm track or the subtropical jet stream, and so you will see, uh, say, the, a significant plume of moisture that comes up from the Pacific and in the case of just before Christmas and New Year's, it was coming across Mexico and flowing into Texas and Louisiana and Mississippi and, and right here in Mobile, Alabama. And that's why we got a foot of rain during the month of December. We had 12 days in a row with measurable rain. Just uh, people are kind of going crazy here, <laughs> including me.
1: <laughs> right. Um, but- Hey, Chris, in, can... in the
4: wintertime, when, when those storms come down the coast, and you're right, there was that, that that persistent ridge, that ridiculously resilient ridge that they were calling it. It was just sitting on the west coast, and it was kind of a storm blocker, and yep. nothing could really get through it. And so that was kind of reinforcing that, that warm water pool. Well, warm water contains lots of energy. Think of you know the hurricanes. While we don't get hurricanes along the west coast, we only get the remnants because we don't have warm water. It has to be 80 degrees uh, or higher. That's kind of seen as the threshold for a tropical system. Uh, And I've I've never seen 80 degree water off the coast. We got pretty
1: darn close this last year. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we Um, did. Hey, Chris, uh, Um, we got to we got to take a break right now. Is there any way we can ask you to stay on for another segment? Absolutely. Hey, we are speaking with the fishing weathermen. uh, Chief Certified Meteorologist Chris Dunn. He's with us. We're talking a little bit about an El Nino and how it affects our fishing here in Southern California. Stan, Wendy, and I. Stay tuned. We'll be back right after these messages.
8: Now. Adventures. Call today HM Landing 619 222 1144 or visit their website at www.hmlanding.com for updated schedules and secure online booking. HM Landing, the experienced angler's first choice in local and multi day fishing since 1935. That's HM Landing at 619 222 1144 or hmlanding.com.
9: 2015 and 16, quantum fishing's gone and done it again for you with the brand new redesigned Smoke PT Reel Series. Everything from your spinning reels all the way to your baitcasters, the PTA design has new PTXA frame, lighter, stronger, bone-crushing drag, quantum fishing. We are performance-tuned. Check them out at Angler's Arsenal in La Mesa or anglersarsenal.com or give us a
1: call at 619-466-8355. This segment of Ron Real Radio is brought to you by the makers of the original balloon fishing clip system, Balloon Fisher King. Now you can fish the precise bait depth desired with these easy to use clips and 100% biodegradable natural latex balloons. All you do is clip, inflate, bait, and fish. Look for Balloon Fisher King clips and balloons at your local tackle dealers or go to balloonfisherking.com for further information.
0: It's a big deal, you know. I've always wanted to be on Rod and Real Radio Live. <laughs> I won the Bassmaster Classic.
10: I did a, a McDonald's commercial, but now I know I've made it. I fulfilled my dream, <laughs>
0: that is just absolutely awesome.
1: And we do want to welcome you back to Rod and Radio. Stan and Wendy are with me tonight. Our special guest in this first hour is Chief Meteorologist. Chris Dunn from WPMI in Mobile, Alabama, but formerly from uh, uh, KPHO in Phoenix, where Chris used to come out here to the coast to do a lot of fishing. Uh, Also kept track of our weather out here for us fishermen. And Chris, we still appreciate your interest that you show in the West Coast here, even though you've got a lot on your plate there back in Mobile.
4: Yeah, well, you know, and I'm trying to get the uh, the regular weekly fishing reports back up and running. Uh, it's just been a, a big transition trying to get reestablished down here uh, when I started here in September. And uh, a new system, uh, a lot more shows I'm doing, and a lot more responsibility. And um, hopefully in 2016 I'll uh, get that back up and running, maybe by the rockfish opener, uh, maybe by the start of the summer season. Uh, we'll, we'll see, but uh, hopefully uh, I'll be able to... to To
1: start doing that once again. Now, Chris, we were talking about El Nino, and let's talk a little bit about the effect of it on the fishing. It it, it isn't like a current of warm water that's pushing fish up, is it, uh, uh, or is it? Uh, How does it affect the ocean off our coast going all the way up into the Pacific Northwest and farther?
4: Well, you know, there, there's still some debate over how it affects our, our water temperatures even in Southern California and off the coast of Baja and uh, even all the way up to Alaska, Oregon, and Washington. Um, but the the thinking is that uh, when there is that warming of the ocean waters along the equator, the trade winds relax, we get a push of warm water from the western Pacific to the eastern Pacific, and that ends up off the coast of Peru, and which it is where the origination of El Nino term came from. in uh, Around Christmas time, El Nino refers to the Christ child or Jesus and the birth of Jesus at right around Christmas time. And that's when they saw the decline of the anchovy fisheries off the coast of Peru. So that's kind of where it got its name and that's where it originates. But we also see some of the side attacks in Southern California. And, and uh, you know, my, my thought is maybe it, it just causes the, the northerly currents that usually bring in the colder water and the, the typical northwesterly winds that... You know, we we like back in the day we called albacore weather, where you have that strong northwest wind and choppy, sloppy conditions yeah. offshore. That results in upwelling and cold water from down below being pulled up to the surface, and kind of keeps it a little bit chilly. Um, and if you've ever fished off the coast of uh, Baja California, say uh, uh, San Martin Island in in July, and you know, wow, it's 59 degrees in the water here. It's because of that upwelling, the cold weather, uh, cold water coming up from uh, from down below uh, El Nino kind of disrupts the entire system. So I think, uh, as long uh, as well as affecting the weather patterns, it also affects ocean currents and the whole balance of everything. And everything kind of gets thrown out of whack, uh, in the entire system. And what we really need to have is, uh, something to kind of knock it back on its head and, and get us back on track to what we would consider normal. Uh, for example, this past summer, I, uh, uh, I usually get one chance to do a, a trip, so I did a five-day trip on the American Angler in August, thinking that's prime time, right? Well, we went down to Cedro's Island in, in Benitos, and everything in between San Diego and, and Cedro's Island was a desert. It was dead. Yeah, Traditionally, the, the, some of the richest fishing waters at that time of the year that, that we could ever imagine, and there was nothing there. Um, there were there was just a smattering of yellowtail down at the islands, and there were some uh, football yellowfin tuna down there. But we ran all the way down there, and then we spent an entire day running back to the Channel Islands to fish for tuna. Right. Yep. Just kind of all all backwards. But everything was kind of displaced about 300 miles to the north, uh, two to 300 miles north of where they normally would be. And a lot of that is because they're following the food, and the food is following the currents, and the, the food is following the the. Uh, the water temperature and the, and the temperature breaks and whatnot. Um, so, you know, it was an unusual year, uh, and, and the year before that was the same as well, not only because of the, the water temperatures, but because of the hurricane activity down off the coast of Baja.
2: Yeah, well, to, Chris, I, do you think- I, go ahead, Wendy.
3: Oh, do you think we're going to have the same thing happen this year, and and um, when will it start returning back to normal, or or when will we get Albuquerque? <laughs>
2: I don't know about that right away. I've I, I fished through the, all of the El Nino so far, both in the freshwater side and the saltwater side. I mean, in the 80s, it was just we. when you turn the corner around the new year, was the motto was just follow the storm because you fished in rain week after week here as that was rolling through the first parts of the uh, the year. This year, it looks like the, we're going to have that finally the storms coming back through here. We had extreme humidity in July. And uh, thunderstorms and you know, on the water, uh, water spouts, because of the warm water here that have been pushed up by the El Nino system. But it's fun to watch, kind of as uh, if you're doing the long range stuff, especially. You went on the five day, and we had an exceptional five day where we went from San Diego to the Cortez, caught yellowfin and yellowtail uh, up to almost 50 pounds, and then turned and went to the Osborne Bank and caught. Two, uh, two days of bluefin tuna. Uh, oh no, not, we just spent a day there or morning basically, caught bluefin there to almost 50 pounds, took off and back to, to San Diego, got rebaited and then went from San Diego do the 220 and got Wahoo and Dorado and ended up going down towards <laughs> San Martin and, and got Marlin and more Dorado and spent some afternoon catching Calico bass and then came back and got more Dorado on the way home. It was exceptional as far as the fishing went this year, but it's all that warmer water that had been pushed up, and this is the furthest that we've seen, like you were saying before. We had Oahu in Ventura County.
1: Yeah. It's the first. Chris, they're calling this probably the most significant El Nino event possibly in recorded history. Are we going to be in for this season, do you think, for... El Nino-generated storms, how long would they last, and could they go into 2017?
4: You know, um, the uh, the question about that, the weather and uh, the length of El Nino, and, uh, of course, the fishing that Wendy brought up, uh, that's the $54,000 question. Yeah.
6: Uh,
4: are we going to have fishing like this next year, or, or are the albacore going to return? Um I, the way the way things typically work with uh, El Niños in the past, and and with this one, it tends to peak in the winter time. The peak of the influence on us is in the winter time with the winter storm track. Um, there, we look back to previous El Niños for for an analog or you know a similar set of circumstances. Uh, we have to look back to the last two big ones, ninety seven, ninety eight, and 82, 83. And we had uh, significant winter storms that uh, those winters. Our seasonal rainfall was around 30, 31 inches, in, at least in Los Angeles it was, uh, which is uh, about twice the normal that we would get. And a lot of that rain actually came later in the winter and into the springtime. So, you know, I had uh, actually a couple of guys on Facebook asking me in uh, early December, so, uh, Mr. El Nino man, where is this rain that we're supposed to be expecting here? It's uh, still dry and we're not getting anything. And, I said, well, you know, the, the, the season is just starting, and uh, winter is just beginning, and typically the effects are through the middle of the winter and into the springtime. So yeah. don't be surprised if we get another series of these storms like we had last week into uh, February, March, April, and even into early May, it's possible.
2: But isn't that kind of, that's how the pattern was really for uh, the 80s, the 80s El Nino. Is that, and in fact, even the 90s. We didn't get a lot of rain in the December, November, and December. You got a smattering, but after the first of the year, um, February, March were the primary big rainy spots during those two El Niños, I believe, out here.
4: Right, and um, in fact, I was. Uh, let's see, in '83, I was uh, actually it was in I was in high school. I was living in Colorado at the time, and uh, we had one of the biggest March snowstorms anybody could ever remember in the middle of March. I was. Uh, A personal story here. I was visiting Long Beach in uh, 1983 in March. My uh, my grandparent's 50th wedding anniversary was that weekend, and they got married in Long Beach in 1933. Uh, And then we had trouble flying back to Denver because of that big snowstorm in March of 1983. Um, And I was able to sneak in a quick fishing trip. On a half-day trip, we went over to Catalina and Capanita in March of that year. Just, you know. Uh, But... Uh, we, we will see more storms, and uh, a lot of times this peaks this out in the, the late winter and into the springtime. So, you know, if we're not getting the rain that a lot of people are expecting at this point, uh, you know, hang on. We still have more, more to come. It's coming. And there's, there's more of the season to come.
1: You know, Chris – uh, uh, I was going
4: to
2: uh, say, uh, let me ask Chris a question here. on the, As this El Nino sits down below us here, and it's, pretty, it's the biggest one we've seen, obviously uh, – Typically, when does the El Nino start to dissipate? And I mean, this year, this one I know usually they last for two, sometimes into three years. This one should go. I think we'll see more affecting on on the fishing. It's already good um, in the middle of winter here uh, for this year. It, we should have that same a little bit more of that same effect. How long it lasts is a question of how long that Nino lasts down below. But normally, how long do they last? Is it two years, three years, or can they push them further?
4: You know, typically it's uh, like a two-year cycle, two-and-a-half years or so, uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, we'll have two solid years of incredible fishing because, you know, as I mentioned, there is a, there's a little bit of a cause and effect, but it's not a direct relationship to, to what goes on in the waters off California. 82-83, uh, and we had uh, Skipjack, yellowfin, Dorado, all of that stuff in 1983. In 1984... Uh, I don't understand. Were you fishing in the coastal waters in eighty four? Oh heck yeah. <laughs> or, or John? Yeah. Oh, we yeah. had an incredible, incredible Albacore year that, that summer.
2: And bluefin. And that
4: was that was also the year that we had those jumbo sized albacore in the Catalina Channel. Yep. 70 pounders. Um you know that doesn't mean that that's gonna happen every time we have El Nino.
2: More um, Bay over ninety.
4: In the early 90s, the albacore were nearly non-existent. We had a long dry spell, like we're going through right now. Uh, and after the El Nino of 97, 98, we had a couple of pretty good seasons in the late 90s and early 2000s as they kind of came back. Um, I, I think, you know, there is a, a cycle to their migration pattern across the Eastern Pacific, and it's just a matter of time before they return as well. So, so Wendy, hold on, I think eventually we will get albacore again, just a <laughs> matter of time.
1: You know, Wendy, we uh, service uh, a lot of the guides up in Alaska, and uh, just uh, last Friday I was ta- talking to Captain Kirk, and uh, he runs uh, a sure strike Lodge out of Sitka, and he said it wasn't unusual. If he had customers that wanted to do it, he'd go offshore about 40 miles, and they'd load up on Albacore. So the Albacore were at least up to Alaska, and I know there are yellowtail out there because – the Alaska Department of Fish and Wildlife, or whatever the department is, they caught an unusual fish up there that at first they couldn't identify, and it came to be that it turned out to be a yellowtail. So they even had yellowtail <laughs> off the coast of, of Alaska. That's just wild. Hey, hey Chris. Oh, Nevertheless, oh, go on. Last, I was going to
4: say the last couple of seasons uh, they've had banner albacore years off off of Washington yeah. and Oregon, and even uh, Northern California. They've had. Really good albacore fishing. Yes, right. they so that's where the fish have been, and, and they just haven't been around where we are.
6: Yeah. Well, it's
4: just the, the
2: warmer waters that kept them, pushed them outside, went right around us, and went up and followed that cold water up north.
4: Yes, yeah, exactly. You know, they don't like it much above 68 or so. You can find them every once in a while, but, you know, that 63 to 64 range, that's kind of their comfort zone.
1: Chris, just quickly, here in San Diego, we're uh, celebrating the 100th anniversary of a gentleman by the name of Hatfield that came into town. He was called the Rainmaker. We were in a big drought here. He contracted with the city of San Diego to create rain to fill up, at that time, Lake Morena. He went out to Lake Morena, shot a bunch of chemicals up into the air, and the next thing you know, they had 10 inches of rain in the Southern California and San Diego area that washed away everything. And the city council of San Diego wouldn't pay him because of all the extreme damage that was caused by the rain that they basically said was his fault. Now, being with the way the weather patterns are, shooting chemicals up into the air at Lake Marina probably had nothing to do with creating any weather. And that's probably one of the first record El Nino years that was here in San Diego. That was uh, 1915.
4: You know, I I think I remember hearing something about that that story before. And, uh, yeah, it it might have been just a a coincidence, but there have been many experiments over the years about uh, cloud seeding and and ground-based cloud seeding. Some of the ski resorts actually do some of that, uh, shooting uh, chemicals or particles into the sky to get it to to force it to precipitate, to make snow and to make rain. I I don't know that back then they had the technology or the wherewithal to, to be able to make that really happen. Uh, but I think, yeah, you know, it was probably more a set of uh, circumstances rather than him actually manipulating the weather.
1: Him doing anything. Well, Chris, I can't thank you for taking the time to be with us. A lot of people out here on the West Coast miss you and especially your reports. If they want to stay in contact with you, and I know you don't need us bothering you there at uh, in Mobile, Alabama, but if people have questions uh, weather-related or just want to stay in contact with you, how's the best way to do it?
4: You can always reach me through my website at thefishingweatherman.com. And also on Facebook, I'm maintaining and trying to keep up to date uh, my Facebook page, which is SD Weather, as in San Diego Weather, and uh, put lots of fishing stuff on there, some weather stuff, and uh, time permitting, when I when I can, try
6: to keep it updated.
1: All right, sir. Hey, thanks a lot for being with us and uh, giving us a little more information on uh, the 2016 El Nino. and and I hope we can uh, talk to you a little bit later on as, as the weather progresses. And let's see how close we came to predicting what was happening.
4: Well, so far, the, the snowpack up in the mountains is looking a lot better, which is uh, just as important as the rain down below. And it's about 140% of normal. So that's looking a lot better than it has in a long time. And it's, it's certainly hopeful. And uh, Stan, John, and Wendy, thanks for having me on.
1: Hey, All thanks for being us. And that snowpack is where Southern California really gets their water from, and that's where they need the rain. Hey, Chris Dunn, Chief Meteorologist for WPMI in Mobile, Alabama, the Fishing weatherman. Chris, thanks for being with us. All right, thanks again. Thanks so much.
3: Thank you. You on Facebook,
1: Chris. Hey, Stan, Wendy, and I, we're going to take a break right now, but coming up next, reports from Phil Friedman and Captain James Nelson. You stay tuned. More Rod and Reel Radio to come.
7: Tuna hooks, ring the hooks tuna doubles, and many more. Don't waste your next fishing trip on a cheap hook. Get Gamakatsu hooks at your favorite tackle store now.
5: My angler H2Oath. I will scent my lure with pride. And hope my boss doesn't notice the tan. I will outmaneuver drought-exposed sunken boats and outlast the hard-fighting largemouth bass. I will save water at home for better fishing out here and always always
11: wear my life jacket what's your h2o tell us at boatcalifornia.com the california state parks division of boating and waterways reminds you to wear it california
1: this portion of rod and reel radio is brought to you by the Rockley's fish release system now you can quickly and easily release fish suffering from barotrauma back to the depths they were caught look or ask for the rock at your local fishing tackle dealer And we do want to welcome you back to Rod and Real Radio. Now it's time for What the Heck is Phil Thinking? Phil is down in Tacati, Mexico, but he sent us a brief report. And here is that report from Phil Friedman. Jorge,
11: take it away. Good evening, John, Stan, Wendy, and Chris Dunn. Great to... Have you here on Rod and Real Radio? Also, since I couldn't be with you in person, this is Phil Friedman. I thought I would tape a quick message for you. We are down in Tacate, Baja California, celebrating Dia de Reyes with over 3,500 gift bags. It is really going to be an exceptional day. And I'll tell you, the folks down here in Tacate, Baja California are so kind and so wonderful. And you get three, 4,000 kids packed in a stadium anywhere and you think man this is going to be difficult but it never is these kids are so well behaved they're so courteous and they are so grateful for what we are able to bring down and actually margaret Koval and many of the police officers from the san diego police department one ex-police assistant chief is a guy by the name of george saldemondo And George is a great guy. He's always one of the three kings down here during Dia de Reyes celebration. So it's going to be a great, great time. And I wish you were here, John and Stan and Wendy and you, Chris, and everybody listening. It's just really a great, great time where these two countries and two cultures get to come together and do something good. And then right after that, I'm going to sneak over to... Los Amigos Tacos. Yeah, man, some of the best asada tacos you'll ever have in your life. So looking forward to that. Then we're going to head over to the Rosarita Beach Hotel. Of course, my favorite here in Baja California Norte. The Rosarita Beach Hotel is so beautiful, and every room has an ocean view. We're going to make that our base, and then... On Monday morning, we're going to head down to Santo Tomas, and if the roads are passable, we're going to go out there and videotape a surf fishing show for you, and that can get real juicy out there with sea bass and calico bass and big barred perch and halibut and all kinds of stuff. I know I'm shooting my mouth off because we may not even be able to get out there. The rain has been so torrential down in that area previously, so we'll have to see what that road's like. If not, we're going to go hit Playa Saldamando about 8 miles just to the north of Ensenada, and we'll check that out. Boats out of San Diego. Well, John, you'll be able to tell everybody how they did. Did they find yellows at Colonnette, or did that water temperature dip down and get too cool? If it did, well, there may not be any yellows, but I'm sure there'll be an abundance of lingcod and rockfish. And I've got a sneaking suspicion there'll still be some yellows on the Yo-Yo Iron. And, of course, local boats out of San Diego will be focusing on the Coronado Islands or there around there, the Rock Pile area right out in front of the Rosarita Beach Hotel, and they'll be looking for those yellows also. And the question looms again, did all that wind and rain and weather and really rough seas, did it reduce water temperatures to the point Where the yellows are out of the picture, we're going to find out here very, very soon. On the other hand, the colder water is something that squid love. Market squid love it. And, of course, market squid are magnets for all kinds of predators. White sea bass, halibut, and so much more. And there's several spots of it at Catalina off Oceanside, up there near County Line, around Santa Barbara Island. We see an awful lot of it. And we're going to hope that that's going to kick things into gear also. Is it too early to start talking about the Fred Hall show? I hope not because I was talking to my friend Bart just the other day. And what an outstanding year this is going to be at Fred Hall. 2016, I'm thinking, it's going to be my favorite year. It really sounds good. March 2nd through the 6th in Long Beach. March 17th through the 20th at Del Mar. And I'll tell you, Bart has got just an outstanding show this year and it looks like it is gonna be a lot of fun very entertaining and as usual so many seminars that you just can't attend them all you can really learn a lot at the Fred Hall show, and it's family fun. It's great for all the kids to come along. And of course, we'll be appealing to all our Spanish speaking friends on Aventuras Al Ade Libre, our Spanish radio shows, as well as our Spanish websites and social media, and so much more. Bart is really excited about getting the Spanish speaking community out to the Fred Hall shows. Hey, Good fishing to you. I'm heading down to Santo Tomas tomorrow morning. We're here at the Rosarita Beach Hotel right now, and it doesn't get any nicer than this. It is really, really lovely. If you want to stay in touch with us, remember PFO on Facebook or www.pforadio.com. In Espanol, you can do it at www.aventurasalarelibre or Aventurasalarelibre on Facebook. John, Wendy, Stan, And, of course, all of you great folks out there, have a great one, and we'll be checking in from beautiful Baja, California. Take great care.
1: Hey, Phil Friedman, we want to thank you very much for checking in with us, and uh, you safe travels. I hope you have no weather-related issues, and we look forward to hearing back from you next Sunday night. Hey, Jorge, do we have Captain James Nelson with us now? Or, hey Captain James hello yeah. here. hey it's now time for the California inshore report with Captain James Nelson and Captain James welcome to the show how you doing guy?
12: I'm doing wonderful John how about yourself
1: Hey we're doing okay uh, we just had a recorded segment from uh, uh, Phil Friedman and telling us about what's happening down at Takati but tell us with these storms coming through what's happening off our local inshore er- areas?
6: Well, we haven't been out there busting ourselves up
4: in those ways. We stayed in the bay last few trips and just had a wonderful time, John. You know, the bay has just been getting loaded with some of that red crab kicked in. Uh, you, know, you know you're know, you having an El Nino storm when it's January and the water goes from 54 degrees to 60 degrees while it's raining. So that's, that's a good sign, having all that warm-up. We'll take it. We'll take the little critters that come with it.
1: Wow. Okay. And, you know... Uh... You know, we were talk, talking to Chris Dunn. We were talking about how El Nino affected here. You know, for as long as you've been fishing in in our local inshore waters, uh, a, can you tell any discernible effect in fishing our or in, uh, inshore bays if El Nino has any effect out here, uh, Jim?
4: Well, you know, it is going to have an effect, obviously, on how it pushes the bait around. I, you know, I did catch a... Uh, what uh, Phil was talking about and the way he was talking about baits moving around, different baits in different waters, yeah, I mean, expect, expect to see if the water stays warmer. Don't expect to see quite the squid life that we normally see this time of year. Uh, I wouldn't doubt we'd still get the bay anchovies. We're already seeing the jack smelt doing their uh, winter thing. But, you know, just expect some differences. Like I said, the last few trips out, uh, we noticed it Friday right after the rain. We had red crabs right in the launch ramp area again. You know, we didn't have seen that since the summer. So, you know, expect those types of things uh, to be different. Uh, and the fish are going to go with it. They're going to change their attitudes, and they're going to be a little different with it.
2: You had red crab all the way into the launch ramp, Jim?
4: We, we did. And we, they were right up there at, at the Shelter Island launch ramp.
2: got to uh, be just kidding me. It's up.
4: January. <laughs> was, yeah, in January, you know. And the water is really dirty, so it's not like I don't know how much of it was actually there. We were just seeing what's coming on the surface. You know, right after the rain, we normally do have a lot more brown in our water than we like, and so the water is a little dingy. But the fish are definitely responding to that. The red craw baits, John, I'm sure you've probably seen some of the pictures I posted on Facebook where are they using red grubs or the little red craw yeah. uh, western Classic. So Derek. They're there, guys. The fish are there. They're chewing. They're still eating the, the chrome stuff, so I know there's some bait fish present. But, uh, but yeah, we definitely started switching to red plastics to adjust to it, and it's paid off.
1: Now, we're coming close Great. to the time of the year where we're going to have some uh, uh, fairly decent tide swings. Uh, Jim, uh, uh, how much, what kind of a problem does did the heavier tides uh, have when it comes to uh, fishing in the, our bays?
4: Well, yeah, we're having now. Today we had a, uh, we let it before it was done, but we had a seven and a half foot tide swing between 9 o'clock and 3.30. So that, that's huge. Um, Ten and, and a half, half feet, foot. did you say? You're seven and a half. <laughs> yeah. was seven, and, seven a and a half. I, that's still big. Yeah. And, it's huge, especially, and you know, you really see it uh, on smaller bays like Mission Bay and Newport. It feels like someone's flushing the toilet on you. But you know in San Diego Bay it, it's a little more gradual but you'll see some really weird things with the current today we saw where when it first started pulling the current was pulling our baits faster than the boat was drifting. but then later on it started around noonish it started to, to kind of go the opposite where the current underneath wasn't necessarily pulling it hard as the boat was drifting so it was, it was just a really uh really neat a phenomenon a really neat effect of course we've got different shifting winds you know storm pre-storm post-storm all that and what we're seeing is because of the storms of course we got a lot more flush into the water so you got high tides going up on rocks that have been collecting debris you've got more debris coming towards the bay through the storm drains and the runoff hitting on those rocks so there's just a lot of flotsam and jetsam out there floating on the water and it's so There are some nav hazards to be concerned with, and the water's brown, so there could be things six to ten inches under the water, still enough that your boat can hit that you won't see because that water's kind of brown.
1: You know, Jim, uh, when uh, we have big tides like that, a lot of guys like to use a method called long lining, and I don't know if that's a method that you use, but I know it's a a method that you're familiar with. Can you just tell us the, the basics on what long lining is?
4: Well, let, let, me, let me see if I can pull up some info on YouTube, John. I don't think I've ever done that.
6: <laughs>
4: uh, uh, but more, seriously. <laughs> yeah, long lining is exactly what the name suggests. And, you know, and it's, it was developed years and years ago. A lot of guys have been doing it. And, you know, and you, um, A lot of guys will argue who started it, and I'm not going to go in that debate. But basically, it's the method of using your line to pull the lure down. And it allows you to get away with using a lighter lead head on your swim bait than, than you would normally need to. Uh, today, we, you could get down there very well with a quarter ounce, provided you were able to drop enough line. And uh, even in a good current, you could do that. And it, what it does, it gives you uh, something you could use to fit the fish's mood. Again, those rice crabs are not very big. They kind of lumber around. They don't drop down to the bottom so a one ounce lead head that would have probably been ideal to get to the bottom without long lining wouldn't have been ideal as far as attracting the fish. So it was really kind of important on days like today to do long lining. And it's you know, John, I, I'm I'm more than willing to just stop, park the boat, hit that anchor button on my trolling motor and just vertically fish the fish. But sometimes you gotta adjust to what the conditions are really doing. They weren't really stacking up today because of the current. When the current starts gripping really well, the fish don't stack up well because it's harder for them. They burn more calories than they get by eating, and it's just useless to them. You know, fish aren't on a, you know, any type of a fitness program like us humans go on. Their whole thing is to get fatter, and the best way to do that is for them to hide behind something, whether it be a clam mount, a bicycle or something, you know, a brush pile, anything that's down there in the water and let the current flow over them while they sit in the eddy. And that's what they're going to do. And so by long lining, you're drifting the boat, you're covering a lot of water, because you're picking up fish one ambush spot at a time. You're not necessarily sitting on top of a stacked-up school. So you're drifting that, and you're able to keep the bait down there in the strike zone, but on not using something that's so heavy, and it's just going to lay there look like a hunk of lead and or get you snagged. So it's a really neat technique. It just, again, it's taking a light lead head uh, with whatever bait or grub or plastic you want to put on there, drop it down, and just keep feeding out line while the boat drifts by.
1: All right. Hey, well, Captain James, now's the time to start booking, not only for the immediate future, but, you know, into 2016. If people want to get a hold of you, book a trip, whether it's San Diego Bay, Mission Bay, or immediate offshore area. How's the best way to go about doing it?
4: Well, they could always reach me online at thefishicon.com. I think there's still a link there on Rod and Real Radio. If you can click that. You can go into any of the tackle shops around town, especially English Arsenal. They'll hook you up. Or the good old-fashioned telephone method, 619-395-0799.
1: Now, James, just as a note, you are a professional certified guide, and I think one of the keys to your success... Is the number of people not only go out to you the first time, but actually are repeat business? And and what do you estimate right now your repeat business is?
12: Well, if I look
4: at the the last quarter, because that's what I've been doing, it's going over the last quarter numbers, being also running my own business here. Uh, I was John. I was at a sixty-four percent so far. I haven't got all the numbers in, but that's just between October, November, and December. And right. you know, and I love it because if those folks didn't come back, I would have been. <laughs> I probably not be talking to you right now. Well, you <laughs> I'd be happy busy flipping burgers.
1: So. Well, you know, not only that. Afterwards, you gain relationships with people, and it's almost like you're fishing with friends. And and I think it's also a sign of your professionalism and the type of product that you present to them that they want to come out and do it again, Jim. And I know I'm a repeat customer, and I can't wait till the next time we get a chance to do it again.
4: Well, it's always flattering, you know, and that, that's just a, a wonderful thing. So,
1: what All kind right. Of I'm, I'm hey, loving
4: Cap- it, I, and I, I love talking to you guys every weekend, and it's really cool.
1: All right. Captain James Nelson, the fish icon. Jim, thanks a lot for being with us, and we look forward. If we don't speak to you during the middle of the week, next Sunday night on Ron Real Radio.
4: You got it, guys. Thanks again for having me. Always a pleasure. All
1: okay. right. Hey, that's it for the first hour of Rod Real Radio. Stan Vandenberg's with us. So's Wendy Toshihara. Coming up next, lure designer and manufacturer Mike Cordell. He's going to be with us, but we're going to spend the next hour talking about the life and times of his dad, Cotton Cordell, who passed away exactly a year ago, a couple of days ago. So stay tuned. A lot of great stories about fishing industry coming on up. We'll be back after these messages.
8: Adventures. Call today HM Landing 619 222 1144 or visit their website at www.hmlanding.com for updated schedules and secure online booking. HM Landing, the experienced angler's first choice in local and multi day fishing since 1935. That's HM Landing at 619 222 1144 or
5: hmlanding.com. My Angler H2O. I will never use that
9: Quantum Fishing's got something for everybody. From the smallest angler into the oldest veteran, we can get you out there fishing with the greatest reels on the market today. From the all-new for 2016 Icon PT to the Tour Mag to the brand-new redesigned Smoke Reel, we've got something for everyone in your family. Have some fun. Take a kid fishing. They're the future of our sport. Quantum, we are performance-tuned. You can get your quantum products at anglersarsenal.com or anglersarsenal.com at 619-466-8355.
3: Hi, this is BSS record holder Dean Rojas. El Cajon Ford helped me when I got started in my career and let them help you with a new F-Series Ford truck.
1: And remember, nobody beats El Cajon Ford. And welcome back to Rod and Reel Radio. Stan Vandenberg is with me tonight. So is Wendy Toshihara. And we want to welcome you to the second hour of Rod and Reel Radio. Hey, and, uh, you know, uh, it's hard to start this, but let's let's do it the best I can. Through the years, we've used a lot of fishing lures that have been associated with a lot of great lure manufacturers that are out there. There's names out there like Norman. Norman and Lewis, and Manns, and Hedden, and LaRue, just to name a few of them. But when it comes to the the forefront, the name that always comes up is Cotton Cordell, or the Cordell Lures. And there was really a guy by the name of Cordell, and that was Cotton Cordell. He made lures for a long time. He was an innovator in the lure-making industry, passed away a year ago. And I've wanted to talk a little bit about cotton, and I felt there's no better way to do that to, than to invite his son, who is also a designer and lure manufacturer in his own right, from Hot Springs, Arkansas, Mike Cordell. Mike, welcome to Rod and Reel Radio.
10: Thank you, John. I'm glad to be here.
1: Well, We we are happy to have you. You know, I, I've known the Cordell family for a long time, but the beginnings of, of the lure manufacturing with, with the Cordell family goes back Way back. Can, can you give us a little bit of, of history about those those early days when when uh, Cotton started uh, coming up with the idea of doing some of the lures that we know today?
10: Well, actually, uh, in the last year of his high school, his dad bought a, a boat landing down below uh, Carpenter Dam on Lake Catherine. And about that time, the Korean War fire fired up, and he had to go off to war, uh, uh, Ended up after that was all over, came back thinking that the boat landing was going to be the thing that he was going to do. And they had built a couple of new lakes while he was gone, Lake Worstell and Lake Hamilton. So uh, he bought a uh, bait shop uptown, and he had uh, he was he, he had always wanted to uh, you know stay in the fishing industry somehow because he loved it so much. But uh, he had, uh, uh, he was buying, during World War II they had survival kits, and in those survival kits were those life rafts, there was a jig. It was called a Bill Upperman jig, and you couldn't find them hardly anywhere, but when he did, he bought them, and they usually cost a dollar, and that was pretty expensive for a jig back in uh, the early 50s. So he started making jigs out of plaster and perish mold. And he had a deer tail were hard to come by, so he had a bird dog there, and he'd clip a little hair off that bird dog, and he'd tie it on that jig head, and he'd put them out in his shop to sell the fishermen, and they kind of caught on.
1: Wow. You know, uh, I, I hear that uh, in the beginning uh, he was, uh, you know, trying to wrap these jigs with deer hair and everything else like that but he he found those materials to be scarce and very expensive but he came out with another source and and mike what was that source that he found uh of hair to to wrap his uh, jigs
10: well he had he had a bird dog there that he he had clipped that hair off that bird dog it was an english setter and he had the baldest english setter in town because the jigs got (laughs) popular He would have to uh, uh, keep slipping that hair. Finally, he found the source up in Pennsylvania for deer hair, and that bird dog grew a little more hair after that. He yeah. looked a lot better, I bet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it worked somewhat better. Yeah. Deer hair is hollow, as you know, and it helps make the jig float.
1: You know, a, a a method of fishing I know in that part of the world is fishing brush tops and everything like that. And that that regular jig would get uh, hung on up. So he came out with another innovation that uh, where he could use a fi- uh, a jig and, and lose less of them.
10: He he, what he did was he take a light, large diaper pin and he would open it up and he'd heat up the point and take a pair of needle those pliers and bend it around, and he would put a spinner blade on it, and on the other end, he'd cut where you put the pin in, and he would mold a, a, that same jig head with that diaper pin in it and a hook, and he would tie hair on that, and he called it a ditty pin, which is basically the first spinner bait ever made.
1: You know, And then later on, that got to be known, I think, as a Wachita spinner. Is that? Yeah. Did he ever go into the production of wire baits or anything like that? Uh, 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 or, yeah, he uh, did
10: build he, he built quite a few spinner baits in his lifetime. Um, during, during the 50s, early 50s, when they were pouring the jigs and making the spinner baits, a salesman came along and said, if you'll put those on a card, I can sell them. In other places, and that was basically how uh, uh, Cordell Tackle began, and it began in the basement of our house. Okay. Behind one street.
1: And then then from uh, there in 1954 or something like that, I think there was another uh, really famous blade bait that really got the the business going for him. Yeah, he, he
10: molded a piece of lead on a piece of brass, And it gave it a really, it put two hooks on it, and it gave it a really tight wobble, and he called it a gate leg. And below the dam, where my grandfather had his landing, he took him out and showed him how it worked. They caught a lot of white bass and black bass on it pretty quick one morning. And my grandfather said, well, you don't really have to let this one out yet, do you? But he did, and it became... A forerunner for all the blade baits that are out on the market now.
1: Wow! You, you know, you know, here we are. We're talking about uh, jigs. Uh, he also came up with the banana head jig that was also one of the first weedless type of jigs that came out. But it seems like what we know uh, Cordell, the name Cordell with, is more for plastic baits. Uh, tell us about the evolution uh, of the uh, the plastic baits, Mike. Well. After the Gay Blade,
10: uh, he went to one of the first tackle shows in Chicago. It was called AFTMA, that show, American Fishing Tackle Trade Manufacturers Association. Uh, And he met a guy that that dealt in, in molding plastic parts. And his name was Joe Lando, and he had some... He had some uh, ideas about a, a minnotype bait, so he, he whittled it out of a piece of wood, and he asked Joe if he could make it out of plastic, and Joe came out with a bowl for him,
6: <clears throat>
10: and he called it a red fin. and he sold several thousand red redfins. Uh, yeah. Quite a few. By then, the company was up and running on spinnerbaits and jigs and and uh, the Gay Blades, and then the, the Redfin came out, and then he got to thinking about another lure, and sitting in the woods, deer hunting, oh, with a piece of pine bark, he whittled out a lure he called the Hot Spot, and the Hot Spot was a, a lipless crankbait, basically, uh, and there was a. a, a He he bolted it, and he put a piece of lead in the front, which gave it a good, you know, tight-action wiggle. And then, oh, back in the uh, 70s, early 70s, we got a phone call from uh, a dealer down in uh, Mississippi. And he said, I've got a bunch of these hot spots down here, and they don't rattle. Pop said, they're not supposed to rattle. He said, well, if I sell them, they do. Said I'll be down there this evening. We jumped in the car. Or he jumped in the car, went down there, and he watched the. Everybody came into the store, would take one out of the box and shake it. It didn't rattle. It beat it on the shelf. <laughs> and they'd break that lead loose of the glue inside, and they'd make it rattle. And they claimed it caught a lot more fish. So he came home, made the lead just slightly smaller, and we quit gluing it so hard that the the lead weight wouldn't rattle, and the rattling spot came to be. Oh my gosh!
1: Wow! Well, yeah, so actually, kind of an accident type of thing. That—that
10: it was a total accident.
1: <laughs> now, you know, when it comes to lures, probably the, the most famous lure that uh, we're familiar with is a lure that, that was called the Big O, but that wasn't necessarily Cotton's you know you know idea but he certainly did take it and run tell us about the big O
10: well there was a lure called the big O it was made by Fred Young in Tennessee uh, it was called the big O because he had an older brother named Otis that was quite a bit pretty good-sized man and Otis was winning all the local tournaments up there well by this time the BASS fishing tournament circuited started up pretty good, and all the pros were finding these lures, and they were actually renting them for like $100 a day. If you had a big O, you could rent it to a fisherman to go fish with, and you, it'd cost you $100 a day, and if you lost it, it'd cost you two. So uh, he called back then, about that time, There was one of the professional fishermen back then was Bobby Murray. Yeah, Bobby Murray worked for Dad. And he called me and Bobby Murray and another guy named Joe Wilson, who was our sales manager at the time, into the office. And he said, okay, you three have a job today. You have to find me who makes the big O. And we narrowed it down to Fred Young, and he went up and talked to Fred and talked him into uh, letting him make it out of plastic. And he told Fred he would pay him a royalty on the first, on all the big O's that we made. And the first year we built a million four hundred thousand. And that was all we could produce that year.
1: You know, well, I had them. Well not only that you're talking about the early nineteen seventies and you know, and and you know, to the fishermen today you talk about something happened in the nineteen seventies that there's just one lure. You know, we talk about all the hot lures that are out there at this time, but that you know, just one lure that was made by cotton, there was there was a million three hundred million four hundred thousand of them sold in just one year.
10: In one year. And that was more money than Fred had ever made in his life. He, yep. he worked in uh, an electrical power plant up there, and uh, And he whittled on the side. And uh, after that, he kind of retired and started whittling more lures. He told Pop, he said, I'll quit whittling them. And Dad said, no, I, I want you to keep on whittling them, but I want you to start numbering them. So, if you have one of those numbered ones, you probably have a very expensive lure in your collection. <laughs>
1: wow. Well, you know, uh, the last time I visited there, I think your dad showed me he had saved a lot of those lures, and there were designs and shapes and things that uh, I don't think uh, have ever seen the market. It's just you, you, you just couldn't make them all that quick. No,
10: no, we couldn't. Uh, his, you know, his basic idea was make a new lure every year and keep your competition coming after you or trying to copy you and not slow down. So we made a big O one year, and then the next year we made one small, And then we made one with a deep diving bill on it. Yep. And we made a small one with a deep diving bill on it. I mean, we just kept the big O going for several years there. <laughs> And uh, everybody else in the industry just tried to keep up. Well, he had a design patent on the big O. And we found out that there were 77 people copying it. And he he, he filed suit against one guy, and it took him a year and $40,000 to make him stop. And he thought, you know, this isn't worth it. So... He just let it go and kept on going.
1: Well, I just decided to stay ahead of the competition and, and come up with innovative products. Yep. Hey, Mike, and we got to take a break right now. Is, is there any way we can get you to stay on for a little bit longer? Because there, we've just scratched the surface on some of the stuff that you and your dad did, and I, I'd certainly like to get it out to our audience here.
10: Sure, I'll be glad to hang on.
1: All right. We're speaking to lure designer and uh, consultant Mike Cordell, and we're talking about some of the products and the legacy that Cotton Cordell left uh, for us. Stan, Wendy, and I—we got to take a break right now. We'll be back after these messages.
9: Once again, the phone number is 619-793-5419 or their website of
1: cedrosoutdooradventures.com.
12: Movies, two roomy indoor heads with fresh hot water showers, stateroom and open berthing areas, an impressively large deck area, 200 scoop bait capacity. We have twin six ton spray brine fish holds to keep your catch fresh, and our professional courteous crew will go the extra mile to make your trip a memorable one. To view our schedule, log on to HM Landing at www.hmlanding.com or feel free to give them a call at 619 222 1144. You can also follow us on Facebook. Facebook and at our webpage at ChiefSportFishing.com Hi, my name is Dennis Green
10: And I
2: always love to talk about fishing When I want the real information, I go to Rod
12: and Real Radio Those guys are who I thought they were
1: Hey, welcome back to Rod Real Radio. And boy, do we have exciting news for you. Rod Real Radio is now available as a podcast that you can subscribe to on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting application. Just search for Rod Real Radio and subscribe. Get notifications for every new episode as they become available or download past shows. You can also go to com, hit the archive page, and go to the date and the guest that you want to listen to, and can listen to it right on Rod and Real Radio. Well, Stan, Wendy, and I, we are happy to bring to the Southern California uh, audience uh, Mike Cordell, lure designer, uh, uh, consultant, but also son of the famous lure manufacturer Cotton Cordell. Cotton Cordell passed away just a few days uh, uh, plus a year ago. And uh, we thought we'd take some time just to remember some of the things that that Mike and his dad uh, have done and have contributed to the fishing industry. And, Mike, again, we want to thank you for being on the show with us.
10: Well, I'm glad to be here, John.
1: You, know, uh, you know, we think of Cotton when it comes to lures, but, you know, Cotton did so many other things. And there was a... Um, A story I like to tell, but I'd like you to tell it if you can, that Cotton was making gears for Abu Garcia for uh, their ambassadors at the time. And he was also good friends with Lou Childreys. And that collaboration created a really a a famous product that is still on the market today. Do you think you know the uh, story I'm talking about?
10: Um, I'm not can tell you a little bit about it. Lou Childrey and Dad became, well, Lou was Dad's very best friend in the tackle industry. Uh, unfortunately, Lou got killed in an airplane crash. Uh, he had his own uh, float plane that he used to fly out of uh, Foley, Alabama and go fishing down in the Gulf. Home. But anyway, Lou and Dad got to be very good friends, and they went to China together or not China, Japan. Japan was the big thing back then. And uh, Dad was making those gears and wanted to find somebody over there that could make them. We were having them built in the United States. He was trying to look for them over there. And we went to a, a company, or he went to a company uh, called Shimano that was making bicycle gears to see if they could build Gears for the, uh, uh, ambassador to make it from a, to a 5.1 gear ratio. And, uh, Lou introduced him to some people at Shimano that made the bicycle gears and they started building the gears for Pop. Well, at the same time, Lou started talking to Shimano about building reels and they ended up at one time, Lou was the largest importer of reels and rods from uh, Japan that there was. The interesting story about Lou was right after the war, right after World War II, he bought a one-way ticket to Japan because he had heard there was a lot of bamboo over there. And he was probably the largest person in Alabama that made uh, bamboo rods. So Lou bought a one-way ticket to Japan and found a man that that knew... uh, where all the bamboo was and took him out and showed him how to trim the bamboo and dip it in the lacquer to make bamboo fishing rods with. <laughs> and talked the Japanese into loading a million dollars worth of bamboo rods on a boat and buying him a ticket back to the United States. And Lou came back and sold all those rods and Paid the Japanese for them, and this was right after the war when nobody had anything, and they literally almost thought Lou was a god over there. <laughs> um, but that was Lou was a really, really great friend, great guy in the industry. I
1: I, I think the you know what was interesting is uh, Cotton and Lou Childers went over to Japan and and Lou uh, had the uh, the first low profile fishing reel. Uh, and obviously he wanted to collaborate with Cotton to make the uh, the gears. Uh, they they could get everything together. Still have a little problem getting the gears, and they went to Shimano, got a deal with Shimano. Shimano started making the the reels for him. And if I'm not mistaken, some of the first reels that were made on the thumb bar that was on the BB1N and stuff like that actually had. Uh, Shimano that was cut into the thumb bar, did they not? I believe they did. I believe you're correct on that. Yeah, but if and, it, if it wasn't for my, uh, Cotton my, and uh, Lou, there may not be Shimano reels on the market today.
10: Might not have been because at the time before Lou died, Shimano, Lou Lou could keep them from selling reels and
6: rods in the United States under the
10: Shimano name. And after Lou died, then they started. You know, important into the country under their own name. But uh, Lou had a lot of power with the guys in Japan. But Dad, Dad helped or carved out the first uh, pistol grip handle that Lou started using on the
6: Lou
1: Speed
10: Stick. Oh man! Wow,
1: that was one of my first rods, and I've got to tell you, when I when I broke my last Speed Stick. Because it caught the large, for me, it caught the largest fish I had ever caught here in the uh, the continental United States. Uh, I cried because you just couldn't get them after that. Man, that, that was such a super rod.
2: Well, you know, I'll, I have to tell you here, my 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 dad's side of the family is from Hot Springs, Arkansas. And there were 12 kids in that family. And, and when we'd go back there to, to fish, it was in between uh, Hamilton and Wachita, so that's where we... Fished, and my, I guess my uncle Marvin was a, a friend of, of Cordell's and uh, and uh, Cotton's, and, and I guess some of my cousins were too. Maybe he didn't tell the end there, but because there was a whole load of them back there. But every time we went back, I mean that the the Gabe blade and those deer hair jigs and uh, all of that was what they kind of introduced us to as kids when I was growing up, and, and this is what we used to fish here, even the Big O, but. Uh, we had those, and we fished them out here in the tournaments when I was a kid, too, or when we were younger. But that was just nothing but, you know, that these are the baits you use. That Cordell spot was like the secret bait from the people that didn't know that the rattles made a difference, because until then, that was the only one that was out. So really had an influence on, especially in my life, your dad really... Really did have an influence here, and it was kind of fun to watch. You looking back and actually listening to the the story here, because I ended up being on the. It wasn't the lose Speed Spool team; it was the Ryobi team. After Lou sold to Ryobi, I was on the first the first guys on their team out here in the West. Um, and the lose Speed Stick was the the premier rod in the bass fishing market. I mean, there was nothing better. Out there. So, uh, you had an influence on me out here.
6: Well, that's great. I'm, you know, I, Dad. Everywhere I go, there's people that do him and and love to
10: tell some of the stories
6: that he, he some of the stories even he told. I think I've heard them all at least
10: a thousand times.
6: <laughs> and and uh, uh, but everywhere I'd go to a sports show, well, I met your dad, and, and he did this and he did that and. It's just you know it's been a wonderful experience growing up back there.
1: Well, well, Mike. Uh, besides uh, you know making the lures, uh, cotton was instrumental in the uh, the careers of a lot of the fishermen out there. And 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 I'm just going to kind of play a name game real quick and and let's talk a little bit about him. And I guess the, the first guy I I want to talk about is uh, 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 Gary Loomis. Uh, Gary Loomis actually started with cotton, did he not?
6: Uh, yes, pretty much. Gary was uh, working for uh, another rod company up in Washington, and left, left
10: that and formed
6: his own rod company. He was he was actually working for Lamaglass, and he left Lamaglass and started making his own rod company. Well, when he left Lammaglass, he took several partners with him, and
10: as <coughs> Some partners do, they didn't do Gary right, and Gary
6: ended up with basically nothing. But in the meantime,
10: he and Dad had become very good friends. Well,
6: Gary came down
10: to Arkansas, and uh, that was about the time we were fixing the to sell out to
6: Pradco. And, and uh, Gary
10: needed, he asked, Dad asked Gary what he needed, and he said, I need some equipment and a little bit of cash. I, I need to. You know, I'm going to have to start over. So we had an end mill and a lathe and two or three other pieces of equipment that we were not using or wasn't going
6: to use anymore.
10: So I helped him load it into a U-Haul. And uh, Pop gave him a little bit of money, and he said, we'll be partners. And Dad said, no, you don't need any more partners at all. You just, the only thing I want from you is to be able to buy rods broad blanks at a good price for as long as you build them, and Gary lived up to that till till the day Dad died, I guess. Well, wow. you know, Gary's been a, a really good family friend over throughout the years.
1: You know, we and we think Cotton uh, Cordell as hard lures and jigs and everything else like that. But another good friend of his was Nick Cream, and uh, tell us a little uh, bit about uh, Nick Cream it and. and and we've got to get you in a little bit better spot, Mike. You might be walking around or something like that, and you're phasing in and out.
10: Um, actually, I'm sitting in a chair, so I'm not walking. <laughs> uh, I, I am on a cell phone. All right, and it may it may be going in and out for y'all. Uh,
1: That's good but, right uh, now.
10: Okay, <laughs> okay, good. Oh, uh, Nick Cream, Nick Cream was building. Uh, soft plastic worms in, uh, Akron, Ohio. And dad had met Nick because pop was putting some, uh, he was doing some, some jig pair worm combinations and selling those before the cream name really became a, you know, a, a big deal. And, uh, Nick decided to move the company down south into Texas, to Lufkin, Texas. And, uh, he and dad, you know, just collaborated on several jig, uh, soft plastic designs through the years. And, uh, once again, you know, Nick, Nick was a good family friend. You know, back in those days, John, the, everybody were, was competitors. But they were all friendly competitors. They they helped each. You know, we all knew that we couldn't get a hundred percent of the business. So you kind of helped everybody in the business get along and, and do what they you know what they needed to do. If it was something that you didn't have and you could promote of a competitor, you did. Well,
1: you know, a lot of these guys were tournament fishermen, Mike, and I don't think. Uh, Cotton ever fish competitively in a in a big tournament or not? And there's actually a little bit uh, of a story about that.
10: <laughs> yeah, Dad knew Ray Scott pretty well. He had come in and, and come up to the to the factory here in Hot Springs, and he said, "I'm going to start fishing tournaments." Um, and he had he had started that bass magazine, and he said, I'm going to start doing uh, fishing tournaments. And Dad said, well, where are you going to do it? Well, the first one was going to be on Fever Lake in Northwest Arkansas. And Pop said, well, I'll fish it. And Ray said, no, you can't fish it, because you're a pro. <laughs> and well, I'm not going to let professional people fish in this. This is all amateur stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> we all know that it involves mainly to where it's Pretty much professional people fishing the ASS now, and uh, they've done a real good job bringing you know people up through the line. But they wouldn't let him fish the first one because he was a pro, so he never did fish any of them. <laughs>
1: but hey, we're speaking years, with M- uh, lure uh, designer years, and, and consultant uh, Mike Cordell. We're talking about the life and times of Cotton Cordell. Mike, <laughs> we got to take another break. Can can you stay with us for one more uh, segment, please?
10: I sure can, John.
1: All right. Stan, Wendy, and I, we got to take a break right now. You're listening to Rod Reel Radio on AM540 or at rodreelradio.com. Stay tuned. More to come with Mike Cordell. <laughs>
5: 7262, or just spell Bass Boat. 1 800 Bass Boat. I know there's too many letters, but the T is free and the call's on me. That's 1 800 Bass Boat, the choice of the pros for Bass Boat Insurance. For more information, log on to 1 800BassBoat.com.
11: My angler h 2 oth, Like the mighty flounder, I will keep one eye on the
5: pole and the other watching for rogue waves. I'll save water by taking shorter showers
11: and enthusiastically celebrate Talk Like a Pirate Day. Aye. I... I will chat up the locals before launching in unfamiliar waters. And I will always, always wear my life jacket.
3: What's your H2O? Tell us at BoatCalifornia.com. The California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways reminds you to wear it, California.
7: It's tuna time, and it's time to reserve your spot on one of the newest boats in the fleet, the 70-foot Sea Adventure 2 at H&M Landing in San Diego. It has a really comfortable galley that seats up to 24 passengers with all the comforts of home, including two big satellite flat-screen TVs and satellite phone. The huge new bait tank and slammer ensure plenty of bait for everyone, and two four-ton refrigerated fish holds, both RSW and blast-free, have plenty of room to keep your catch as fresh as the minute you caught it. Reserve your spot on the Sea Adventure two online at hmlanding.com or call H&M Landing at 619 1144
1: And we want to welcome you back to Rod Real Radio. Stan Vandenberg's is with us tonight. So is Wendy Toshahar. We are speaking to lure designer and consultant Mike Cordell. Mike is the son of Cotton Cordell. And we've been reminiscing a little bit about uh, the life and times of uh, Cotton Cordell. And what an influence he had on the industry that we're, we're here today. And, John, and my- I, had a, I
2: had a text from my brother while, while we were on the break there, and he said, from the Vanderburgh family, he wanted to say thank you to, to the Cotton Cordell and, uh, for the influence that he's had. Because it's been such a big part of our, our lives growing up. I mean, I was we were fishing. I was, I started fishing tournaments in the mid seventies, and by seventy eight I was on a team on the actually that 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 Ryobi fishing team and Ryobi in Ryobi in and contender. But that, the we were talking about the, the gay blade and you know the buck the bucktail jigs or the deer jigs, and and uh, just how much of an influence that had and that banana head jig. I'm a jig fisherman. And that banana head jig was that was the jig of choice after we figured out you know how to put rubber bands on instead of deer hair. But what a from from my side, I'm just sitting here smiling because it was. I didn't realize how much of an influence my uncle Marvin Vanderberg had lived in Hot Springs, Arkansas. There and the rest of the family around there. That introduction came to us as kids, and we just grew up learning how to fish the products that. Helped change our lives and and, and entered into the professional ranks because of it. But what a it, it's kind of a fun thing. I met I met Cotton a couple of times at the shows when he was down here in Long Beach, and it was uh, it was fun to talk to him and talk a little bit about the history even there. But this is I didn't know all the little idiosyncrasies, and it made a big difference in my life. I, it, I it's i smiling. I'm just sitting here smiling while I'm talking. It's uh, it's been fun.
1: Well, you know, Stan is, as, as Mike said, these guys were all friends, and and Mike, uh, uh, there's a list of guys that Cotton was involved in, right in their infancy stage, that he helped them in their careers. And one guy I'm thinking about is uh, Bill Dance. Uh, 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 Cotton helped Bill when uh, Bill uh, originally was starting his show.
10: That's 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 true. Uh, actually. Um there was a rep we had a rep over there named dennis demo and dennis brought bill over to the factory and said bill was he was a pretty good fisherman back then and and uh he had started uh fishing little tournaments around there was doing very well so dad hired bill to promote his lures over in the tennessee memphis mississippi area and uh he bought him his first TV camera and said, you need to make a TV show. <laughs> and uh, he did. Oh, my gosh. That's and, great. Uh, you know, it just kind of blossomed from there. So, you know, uh, uh, we you
1: know, had Bill Jerry was, McGinnis on just uh, last week, and, and uh, uh, Cotton and, and Jerry were fairly good friends, too.
10: Yeah, Jerry used to call Dad when he needed a film in a hurry. You know, it was one of those weeks where, uh, they had gone to do something somewhere and the fish didn't cooperate or something. So he'd call dad and they'd run up to Lake Warsaw and they'd, you know, make a TV show. And, and I can remember one year in particular or one time in particular that, uh, Jerry called and said, I need to make a show. That's, well, the fish are doing pretty good for Warsaw. Come on over. So they went out and made a, you know, they shot film all day long, caught several bass and everything. Dad came dragging home that night and was kind of tired and got a call. And uh, Jerry said, i tell you this, but I forgot to put film on the camera. Oh, really? we got to go <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> so they went back the next day and did it again with film. But it was, uh, you know, there was a lot of good times back then.
1: Oh, my gosh. You know, uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, what we're thinking about, a, a fellow from Hot Springs, Arkansas, what influence can he have on, on the country? But at the height, which I believe is somewhere right in the early 1980s, how many people was was Cordero Manufacturing uh, actually employing, and how many lords a day were they actually getting on out? In
10: Around around seventy five through eighty we uh we had three hundred and fifty people in hot springs working in the factory here and we had three hundred people in El Salvador working down there and we had ninety in Taiwan tying jigs and doing that kind of stuff. And we were building right at twenty five thousand hard lures per day. Wow. And uh uh, keeping all those people busy and the only reason you know we hot springs is a fairly small town or was back then and uh he had a friend in the business named bill humphrey that had h and company and they had done a, a deal in el salvador uh through lsu where they were kind of I don't know, transferring sports and teachers and stuff back and forth and they were looking for jobs and Bill called Dad and said, You need to come down here and help these people. All he needs a job. So he went down there and looked and he decided he couldn't uh he couldn't figure out how he could do it and got back to Hot Springs and about a week later the minister of industry from El Salvador showed up on our doorstep and said, I've quit my job. I want to put it in a factory and build fishing lures for you. And his name was Alfredo. And Alfredo stayed with us. Well, actually, he stayed through after we sold to Pradco. He stayed through and and built lures for Pradco for years after that and never missed a shipment date. Wow. That's great.
1: You know, and also, you know, Besides, when all this was going around, I know Cotton. He was a uh, a deacon in his church, and he probably could have been a minister just as easily as a fisherman or a lure manufacturer. But I know from right from the beginning, he had a dedication for the younguns and kids, and wanted to see him even at you know when I first met him in the 80s. Wanted to get them away from a lot of the distractions that they're in the world and get them involved in fishing and, you know, that was at a time when, you know, it it, it wasn't I don't know, politically correct as we're all going yeah we want to take a kid fishing right now but he was doing that way way before you know I think other people were thinking about it.
10: Yeah, he had. Uh well, you're right about Dad being a deacon in the church. He was he was a deacon in a Southern Baptist church for over 50 years, and, and he taught Sunday school to, you know, 12- and 14-year-old boys for a long, long time, uh, would take them camping and fishing and, you know, just do a lot of things with them. But he had a, a saying on his, the back of his business card that went something like, uh, first, teach a, a kid to love God. Then teach him to love your family or his family, and then teach him to fish. And no dope peddler in the world ever sell him anything. So, right.
1: and uh, boy, those those words are as poignant now as they were even at that time. And uh, I just uh, always knew him, knew him to be one of the most gracious guys and and a really giving guy and. You know, I got to know you guys when you were started uh, going around uh, and, and doing the rods after Cotton uh, sold out to the company that we now know as, as Pradco. He just didn't retire, though. He kept on going.
10: Yes, he did. I mean, he told me, he said, I can't quit. And when we, when we sold to uh, Pradco, uh, we were building fishing rods, and I had started building fishing rods on the side. Just kind of as a hobby, to, for some of my friends and and a few people around, and I'd sell a few rods locally, and then you know, of course, Dad couldn't do anything small, <laughs> so he kind of took it and started hiring more rod wrappers and buying more blanks, and before I knew it, we were in the full fledged rod business, and uh, uh, came uh, uh, and, and an interesting note about that is he called them lightning rods. Huh. And after we quit making the lightning rod, a few years later, uh Berkeley came out with a rod called a lightning rod. Yep. And they spent, a, a, you know, quite a few dollars on an advertising program to get them off the ground, and then got to the show, and somebody walked up and said, well, that's that name's registered by Cotton Cordell. Of course, you know, here they came, and, and Dad said, well, we don't use that name anymore. If you'll just, you know, send me a contract. that All I got to do is sign one page. I, I, I don't want a whole big bunch of paper. I just want one page. And and uh, he got a thing about a book thick from him in the mail. and sent <laughs> it back, said, I'm not signing this. And so they sent him one that was about three pages long, and he signed it. And, and uh, gave the name to, to Berkeley. <laughs> That's just the way things went back then. Again, the you know, everybody tried to work and get along with each other. Chris, well, was, at that point in time, Chris, was that a composite rod
2: that you were building to the lightning uh, rod? We, start, we we start the
10: lightning rod was actually a uh, started out as a glass rod, and then we went into a composite rod with it. Uh, where it was part glass and part uh, graphite because that would we dropped... I'm sorry I was gonna say did um, well that,
2: that when you started building that what year was that Do you know
10: oh gosh that was we built the lightning rods and I guess around seventy76 seventy seven maybe oh, Something did, like that.
2: Uh, did Lewis was he involved with that? Through Lou? No, no, it was Gary Loomis involved with that time.
10: Uh, Gary was involved through uh, one of his earlier companies. Or, you know, when he was working for Lama Glass, we were yeah. buying some blanks from Lama Glass back then, and that's kind of how he and Dad got to know each other, was uh, through Lama Glass. He was an engineer for Lama Glass, and we were buying blanks from them, and, that's, and Pop would go up there, and that's kind of how they got to know each other. That would make sense, and then you know, of course, after Gary started his own business, his dad helped him start a second business. Uh, we used strictly, pretty much, aluminum blanks uh, from then on.
1: And, and those were great rods. Uh, when you guys were traveling, you you know, the we all got to know you because. You and your uncle George and Cotton and your mom Irma, you just used to load up the suburban with as many rods as you could fit into the thing, and you'd run off to these shows and you'd sell them directly to the public.
10: Yeah, we were. We actually we we were. Uh, it was myself and I had hired an, uh, another guy to ride with me, and then my uncle George and Aunt Mary, they would put eight hundred rods in there. Suburban, and Dad and Mother would put rods in there, Suburban, and we'd all strike out, and we'd do, from the 1st of January till about the end of uh, May, we would do forty about 42 shows a year. And, uh, you know, we stayed going all the time. and My wife, Becky, ran the rod plant when we were gone and would ship us rods out to each show wherever we were. Well, Dad had what I thought was the the sugar deal because about the time the snow hit up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania or up in Chicago, where all of us were, he'd strike out for Southern California and do Fred Hall's sports show. It took me quite a few years to talk him out of that and let me start coming out there once in a while. That's when I kind of met John and... It got to be friends.
1: Well, I, I remember that when they f- f- first started selling the rods, uh, they were Cotton Cordell rods, and then it, it came to be that he didn't even have the rights to his own name. He he had sold the rights to his own name for so many other things. So then uh, it, it got to be the Mike Cordell rod and the Ripplin Water rod that was designed and approved by Cotton Cordell, and, and I still yeah. have two or three of those rods today that I fish with.
10: They're still; they were good rods, and they still are good rods. I, I still fish with them. So, uh, I mean, I I'm, I thought at the time they were the best rod made. And well, I you know what? Sure what I, a were. lot of that back
2: that technology when the that first part of one the graphite rod and the and the glass rods when you got the composite rod together. I think Al Jackson was a part of those way back when. Um, the,
4: yeah,
2: but that technology back then uh, and i think it was because they didn't overcomplicate the composite materials you i think some of those rods were some of the best rods ever made
1: well they were made by loomis the blanks were made by loomis in the beginning i know how could you get any better hey mike unfortunately we've come to the end of the evening and i got
2: one more question before we go well hurry
1: up there's like 30 seconds before the end of the show
2: Uh, i just want to know if mclard is still making barbecue Clark is still making barbecue. Hot Springs, <laughs> Arkansas. That's all I want to know. I got to get back there
1: to have a ride. Hey, right. <laughs> Mike. I look forward to the next time we get together. I don't get out that part of the world as often as I do, but thank you so much for taking some of your Sunday to talk to us about your dad. I know it could have been a little bit difficult, but man, we just so many great stories, and we're You're happy that you could share some of them with us tonight. Uh.
2: This, anytime, what, a, time, what a influence on my life. That's all I got to say. And now I'm doing fishing with the mission with my church too. Good. That's great. That's great. All right.
1: All right. Thank.
10: Well, John, call me anytime.
1: You I'll be. Uh, I'll be somebody. talking to you later on, Mike, and and thank all you right. again for being with us. You're welcome. Bye. Yeah. Boy, stand Good and Wendy, stuff, Great memories, and if you're uh, any type of a, a a fan of the history of uh, fishing. Man, this is, uh, this is part of our history right there.
2: You're not kidding. That was great stuff.
1: All right. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, Wendy, thanks a lot. Stan, also thank you. And uh, that's it for the show tonight, ladies and gentlemen. We want to thank you for listening to us. So on behalf of Stan, Wendy, Jorge in our uh, studios at AM540, Ben Harvey, our local producer here in, in San Diego, and always a memory of Big Tuna Bill, and Eddie McCune that gave us this heritage that we call Rod Real Radio. Thanks for listening tonight. I hope you had a good time. I know we did. We look forward to being with you again next Sunday night at 5.05 p.m. on AM 540 or at rodrealradio.com. So until then, we'll see you on the water. Go out. Be safe. We're out for now. Good night, everybody.